you'd like to grab a seat, grab your Bibles. If you've got a Bible with you, turn with me to John chapter 2. If you're new here or visiting, you're incredibly welcome. It's lovely to see you. Uh, my name's Neil. I'm married to the amazing Kate. Together we serve this wonderful community of faith here, the Southwest London Vineyard. If uh, you are new or visiting, please do uh, go and see uh, Sarah or Hazel at the back there wearing these fantastic lanyards. We'd love to help connect you with this part of the body of Christ or whatever part of the body of Christ it is that the Lord is calling you to. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 2. Now, before we get into the text, one of the things that you might not know about me is that I have an absolutely terrible sense of direction. Uh, without, without maps, without uh, a GPS, without great big road signs everywhere, I am utterly lost. And Kate, however, and not that this is a source of tension in our marriage in any way, shape or form, I still can't grasp how she does it. But we can go somewhere once, literally once, and then, I don't know, three years later, without the aid of a map or a GPS or a sat-nav or anything. She'll say, ah, yes, third turning on the left, down to the end, past the house with the yellow door, I think it has, and it's 100 yards on the right, uh, if I remember correctly. And, of course, she's always absolutely right. Uh, now, uh, for those of us who, like me, are directionally challenged, imagine what life would be like in a world without signs. Uh, without signs, any of us who have ever been to Heathrow would still be there. Uh, we'd never be able to find our sick relatives in a hospital, or if we did manage to track them down, uh, certainly we would never be able to leave again. Uh, many of us, especially uh, now that we rely so heavily on GPS, uh, most of us honestly don't really know how to get from A to B. Um, so every day of our lives, we rely on some form of science, some kind of science. Signs provide us with the information that we need. They point us in the right direction. Signs get us to our destination. And as we embark on our journey through Lent, as we head towards the events of Holy Week and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the seven signs of Jesus as recorded in the Gospel of John. But before we set off on our Lent journey through John, I thought it might be helpful for us to have a quick look at sort of some of the other signs from the Bible. The Bible is full of signs. They're all over the place. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, as you read through the Old Testament, you will have come across already a whole host of biblical signs where God performs some kind of supernatural event through, usually through one of the characters of the Old Testament. Uh, in Exodus, uh, through Moses, we see God demonstrating his power and his presence through a whole host of signs and wonders. And so, you know, we've got Moses' staff turning into a snake and then turning back from a snake into a staff and then all the other magicians try to do the same thing and then Moses' snake staff eats up the other uh, snakes. Then you've got leprous hands, you know, leprous, not leprous, hand in and out. 
uh, the plagues of Egypt are definitely signs, uh, terrible signs, certainly not good ones, but signs nonetheless. And then you've got like the parting of the Red Sea, the healing waters at Mara, you've got manna and quail from heaven, water from the rock. I mean, it's all going on in Exodus, if you've got there yet. Uh, but one thing um, that's clear from all these uh, signs and others, all these signs and wonders that we see in the Old Testament is that they all serve to effectively authenticate God's messengers uh, so that the people who are seeing the signs, the people who are witnessing the signs will believe the message that the messengers are carrying. And so the signs that we read about in Exodus, they confirm uh, Moses as God's messenger. They demonstrate that the, the message that Moses has and has to deliver has come from God. We see the same thing uh, through the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, Elijah causes the widow's uh, food supply not to run out, raises the widow's son from the dead. Then we see that kind of whole fantastic encounter with uh, the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And there's fire and there's lots of water and all kinds of posturing and posing. Uh, Elijah causes it to rain after a long drought. Elisha, we see the same sort of thing. Even Isaiah uh, doesn't get left out. He, he causes the shadow of a clock to move back like 10, down 10 steps. And again, what we've got, we've got God using these signs to validate his prophets so that people would believe the prophet's message. And meanwhile, in the New Testament, there are signs and wonders all over the place, recorded in all different places, in various places, but they take on this whole other level, the whole other meaning in the Gospel of John. And John is, is very different from the synoptic Gospels of uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And what John does is John seems to leave out a whole bunch of things that the other Gospel writers include, but then he includes a whole bunch of really important stuff that we don't necessarily see in other places. And one of those things that we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks are what have become known as the seven signs of Jesus. And just in case you want to know what they are, I'm not going to test you. Uh, they are turning water into wine, uh, clearing the temple, healing the nobleman's son, the healing at the pool, feeding the 5,000, healing a man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. Seven signs of Jesus. Now, given that these signs play such a central kind of role, certainly in the first half-ish of the book of John, we might reasonably ask ourselves the question, you know, why? What is it that John is driving at? What's he getting at? What's he trying to show us? What is he wanting us to see? Is there anything that we can learn from these signs. And again, maybe a good place to start is to see if any of these signs, these seven signs, have got anything in common. And uh, they do. And one of the things that they have in common is that they all take place in public. They all happen in public. There are witnesses to all of these signs. In fact, there's a lot of witnesses to these signs. Uh, the signs, the seven signs of Jesus, they're not done in secret. They are intended for everyone to see. Uh, another thing is that these signs, uh, this is going to come as a great surprise to you, but these signs are specifically called signs in John's gospel 
narrative. And what that tells us is that John is wanting us as his readers to see these signs in and through the lenses, if you like, um, so that we can interpret and understand them in light of what the Old Testament signs and the Old Testament teaches about signs and wonders and the purpose of signs. So as we're looking at the signs in John, it's kind of pointing back to the centrality and the importance of the Old Testament and our understanding of the application of the Old Testament. Another thing that John does is he intentionally kind of links all these signs together. They all weave together. They're all interlinked. The seven signs all share this uh, common, uh, cumulative, and collective purpose, which uh, John explains towards the end of his gospel. He says this at the end of his gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciple, which are not recorded in this book. And and what that tells us is that uh, he's been, John's been selective about the seven signs that he's picked. But Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in his book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Seven signs of Jesus are captured so that anyone who's reading John's gospel, and that includes us some 2,000 years later, that we would read his gospel and would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life uh, in his name. And just like uh, we've said about all the Old Testament signs, the signs in John, they are intentional, they are there, they are intended to validate and authenticate the messianic ministry and message of Jesus. There is, however, one a significant difference between uh, these seven signs of Jesus and the signs in the Old Testament. Unlike the signs in the Old Testament, the signs that Jesus performs not only point to his message, they also point to him as the messenger. The seven signs of John are not just pointing to God's message like the Old Testament signs were. They are proclaiming, in fact, that Jesus himself is the message. When Jesus performs these seven signs, he's declaring something about himself that Moses never could. And with these signs, Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. The signs of Jesus prove that he is the Christ. They prove that he is the Messiah. They prove that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the very Son of God. And so when Jesus performs uh, one of these signs, it's like he's making a case for who he is. And, and John actually does, is doing exactly the same thing by capturing these miraculous events in his gospel. Many theologians say that John's gospel is like a legal argument uh, pulling together all these different strands of evidence as to why we should believe in Jesus. And at the center of John's argument are these seven signs of Jesus. It's as if John has sifted through all of the evidence that's out there, all the miracles of Jesus, all the things that Jesus said and did, and has compiled the very, like, the very best evidence for that, uh, for his case. And so these seven signs, they become like building blocks of evidence, if you like. And each one kind of adds to the weight of evidence. Each one builds on the one 
uh, that goes before it. And they, until they go on building until they reach this crescendo, the crescendo of the seventh and final sign where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And so uh, the, raz- the raising of Lazarus from the dead, we'll look at that on Easter Sunday, is in effect John kind of closing his, the argument of his case. It's like his summing up speech. It's like mic drop moment. And he's basically saying, you know, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Look at what Jesus has done. He's just raised Lazarus from the dead. And what's interesting, uh, to me at least, is that after the seventh sign, we see the end of Jesus' public ministry effectively. And so, uh, just like the signs that we see every day, the, the seven signs of John's gospel, they, they're all pointing beyond themselves. They're not important in and of themselves. They're pointing beyond themselves and onto someone far greater. The signs are not the thing. The signs are not the destination. They are merely pointing to the direction of a far greater truth about who Jesus is and what he has done. The purpose of these seven signs is that we might see them and and then uh, in and through seeing them, we might see that Jesus is the Christ. Okay, that's your introduction. With all that in mind, let's begin our Lenten journey through the seven signs of Jesus, which uh, starts at a wedding and ends at a funeral. Um, And along the way, we'll get to see, as I've said, water turned into wine, someone who can't walk uh, getting brought to their feet, a blind man giving his sight, and a corpse being brought back to life. And it's all pretty dramatic stuff for a Sunday morning. But uh, back to our text this morning. We're going to look at John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. But before that, why don't we pray? Spirit of the living God, we welcome your presence here. We thank you that you go before us and behind us. You lay your hand upon us. We thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts to hear you, to see you, and be transformed by you. Amen. This is John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples they would also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. There are these uh, sort of cultural, uh, culture-defining moments in history. Uh, There's a whole host of them, you know, from the invention of the printing press to the 
I don't know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, a whole host of other things besides, um, we may well have witnessed half a dozen just this week. Uh, on the 9th of November 1989, the, uh, we saw the, the fall of the Berlin Wall. That kind of marked the end of the then Cold War. And, and with it, at that time, it meant that the old order was gone and there was like a new age beginning, a new one, a new era was beginning. And similarly, this is what happened at this very ordinary wedding in Cana sometime during the first century. Because it's at this pretty nondescript wedding in this remote part of Palestine that Jesus inaugurates his public ministry by performing the first of these seven signs. And at this wedding, Jesus very famously turns water into wine. And, you know, you could argue, you're reading the text, that sort of what he did was just fairly pragmatic. You know, there's a need. They've run out of wine. Um, we're at a wedding. Jesus' mother, Mary, has asked him to step in. And so maybe Jesus is just doing the right thing by, he's by fixing a problem. There's a problem that we fixed, and uh, he certainly can fix it. And he wants to save maybe a whole bunch of people from a lot of embarrassment. But, you know, if we think that's all that's going on here, we're probably missing a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, here in the midst of this wedding, Jesus performs a sign that is like a trumpet blast. It's like a herald announcing an end to the old order and the coming of the new. Because the water that Jesus turns into wine from the ceremonial jars is to be a symbol of the end of the old covenant with all of its laws and all of its rules and all of its regulations and the start of the new messianic age. You'll know that weddings are pretty major uh, social events. Apparently the average cost of a wedding in uh, the UK in 2023 was 20,700 pounds. Yes cheaper half the price. Uh, weddings clearly can be, you know, incredibly elaborate, expensive occasions. You know, you've got a trawler around for a venue, uh, which when you tell them it's for a wedding, they add 20% to the booking. You've got to find a dress if you're the bride, probably not the groom. Uh, you've got to work out who's gonna, who you're going to invite, uh, who you're not going to invite. You've got to find a caterer, you've got to find a DJ, you've got to decide whether you trust your guests with a free bar or whether you should charge them extra, and is it gonna be carnage uh, by 10.30 in the evening? I mean, it's a lot. Weddings are a lot. Um, some 31 years ago when we got married, uh, the tradition uh, in those days, back in the old days, the tradition was that um, our wedding wasn't really our wedding. Uh, back then, weddings were all about the parents of the bride. Um, they usually paid for most of it, if not all of it, and so it's actually, to be fair, it's fair enough. Uh, but it would often be on their budget, at their preferred venue, with their guests, and we just sort of tagged along. It's essentially, you know, traditionally, weddings is a real opportunity to put a stake in the ground and let everybody know about how marvelously you've done in life. And... Many of you will know uh, one side of my family is from Pakistan, and uh, trust me, their weddings are like a whole other ball game. They're seriously, seriously lavish affairs. They go on, they go on for days on end. My cousin 
was at a, a, a wedding in Islamabad over Christmas, and she was telling me that one of the one of the groom's celebrations, one of the groom's celebrations, she felt like she'd stepped into Versailles. Weddings uh, back in the first century were a lot like that. Uh, they were very important social events that probably had even greater social significance than weddings do today. A wedding in the first century it is, was a community event. The whole village would probably be invited. And again, they would last for several days. And the success of a wedding in the first century it pretty much rose and fell on the quality of the hospitality. And so for this family here, dropping the ball on hospitality by running out of wine, this is a serious social faux pas. This is, this is not good. And so when she learns about this, Mary, who they reckon was possibly related to the groom's family, she steps in to find a solution. And of course, who else would she turn to but Jesus? So she rushes over to find him. She pulls him off the dance floor. That's poetic license. And then they have this really odd conversation. This is, this is the strangest conversation. Have a look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Interpretation of tone, my own. Jesus replied, my hour is not yet come. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always thought that Jesus' response was a little terse, to say the least. I may be reading it wrong, but it seems little strange. First, he addresses her as woman, which, you know, to Arius sounds a little odd, but, you know, actually was a fairly respectful greeting in the first century. Certainly not a warm or endearing one, and, and not normally how a son addressed his mother. Another strange thing about Jesus' response is this, um, you know, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. It's like, to me, it sounds like he's saying, like, leave me alone. I'm just trying to have a good time with my mate disciples, like, over here. But I think the key is in this phrase, my hour has not yet come. By saying this, what Jesus is doing is like, really, we're really early on. Jesus is already turning his attention to his mission and his purpose and the events that we'll remember at the end of our Lent journey on Good Friday, his crucifixion. Jesus' death on the cross was to be his hour. But despite his protest, I love the fact that Mary seems to completely and utterly ignore him and in true sort of motherly style, just turns to the servants and says, well, just ignore him, do whatever he tells you. And so the miracle takes place and water is turned into wine. And while Jesus, you know, ultimately is fulfilling his mother's request, he, he does it in such a way that it actually brings all the glory to the Father. And this sign speaks these profound truths about Jesus' identity, about Jesus' mission, about Jesus' purpose. And I just want to quickly highlight some of them. And the first is, is transformation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. You know, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we experience radical and dramatic change. We are utterly transformed. We become something and someone utterly new. When Jesus turned the water into wine, he was effectively telling the whole world that his was the power to bring about radical change and radical transformation. 
Jesus performs this first sign as a demonstration that the, the old things are passing away and that he's transforming and changing everything and renewing everything. The second thing uh, was that this miracle heralded the end of the old, as I've already kind of mentioned. Mary comes to Jesus. She makes this really simple statement. She says they have no more wine in, in John chapter 2, verse 3. But this is actually a deeper theological truth uh, about the religious practices of the first century and all that had gone before it. One commentator writes, they have no wine is not simply a comment by Mary about the panic of a wedding's host. It's a theological statement about the religion of the old covenant that was now meeting the Messiah of the new covenant in his very first miracle. Jesus is declaring the end of the old covenant and he makes this abundantly clear by the jars that he chooses to use. Jesus creates wine from water taken from six enormous jars that John tells us were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing in, in verse 6. Jesus creates wine. Wine is a symbol, as we'll uh, remember and celebrate in a moment when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Wine is a symbol of the new covenant taken from ceremonial jars, symbols of the old covenant. Jesus is basically saying, this Stuff, this water in these jars that you've been washing yourselves in to make yourself ceremonially clean, it just is not up to the job. It will not do the trick. Here, come and try this. Come and taste the wine of the new covenant in my blood, which will transform you completely from the inside out, radically, permanently. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so Jesus is declaring in uncertain times that, in certain terms, that just uh, the, the old covenant, you know, couldn't do what everyone needed it to do. And that just like the Berlin Wall, it was coming crumbling down. And then there's the, the coming of this new age. So he's heralding the end of one age, but he's heralding the announcement, it's the inauguration of a new era. With this first sign, Jesus is declaring the dawning of a new age. By turning water into wine, Jesus is announcing the coming of the kingdom of God and the inauguration of this new world order, and that of the Messiah, the rule and the reign of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. C.S. Lewis once said that God doesn't do parlor tricks. And what that means is that God doesn't perform miracles simply to impress us and to show off. When God performs a miracle, he has a specific purpose and intention in mind. And so in light of this first miracle, I guess my question to us all is, is how are we responding? How do we respond? How do we respond to this first miracle? Have a look at verse 11. When what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. The purpose of this first sign was to manifest the glory of Jesus as the Christ. And our response is quite simply to believe in Jesus. In so many ways, we are guests at the wedding 
at Cana. And, and like the disciples, we too are witnesses of this sign of Jesus. And the question, I suppose, is how are we going to respond? Do we see, as we read this, as we spend time in this over the coming days, do we see his glory? Do we see the glory of Jesus who comes into the mess of our lives to bring new creation and transformation and the radical power to bring about a new age, the age not of religious observances and rituals, but the breaking through of the kingdom of, the kingdom of God? And then secondly, if we tasted the wine, you know, the wine, um, the wine that Jesus makes at Canaan, this, it's symbolic of all the glory of the new covenant. This is the wine of the covenant, the new covenant in his blood being offered to each one of us to drink in remembrance of him. With this sign, Jesus is inviting us to exchange, to swap the water of our empty religious practices, the meaningless, tasteless stuff, and instead to drink deeply of this fantastic vintage wine, the wine of his glorious righteousness. It's an invitation for us to give up the, the tasteless water of our old lives for the new, the rich abundance of new life with him. And so as we take time this Lent to slow down and, and turn our attention to him, to fix our gaze on Jesus, let's take time to reflect on the significance of this, the first of Jesus' seven signs as we invite the Spirit of God to come and transform us, transform our hearts, transform our minds in exactly the same way as he turned water into wine. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now.